Welcome to episode 18 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider podcast. Uh, we have an awesome episode covering a lot of news that's come out over the last couple of weeks. Uh, going to be covering everything from WeWork to uh, insurance with these crazy climate disasters we're having. Uh, but to start off, uh, what I wanted to talk about is this recent uh, announcement from Zoom. Um, Zoom is requiring all employees within 50 miles of their offices to show up in the office two days per week. Uh, they said, quote, we believe that a structured hybrid approach, meaning employees that live near an office need to be on site two days a week to interact with their teams is the most effective for Zoom. So we all know that all these big tech companies are, are moving in this direction, right? Google, Amazon, Salesforce, Snapchat, Meta in particular have all made big announcements over the last couple of months. One of the things that I find so interesting about this is is not necessarily that Zoom, who has become ubiquitous with work from home uh, and creating remote team flexibility and all that, the fact that they're bringing people back, of course, like there's a signal in there. And I think that that's something that people need to pay attention to. But there's something else uh, in this news story that struck me as even more interesting. So Zoom has about 7,500 employees and their corporate headquarters uh, in the Bay Area is only 52,000 square feet. So people that know real estate know that that's probably space for like roughly call it 250, maybe 300 employees, depending on their density. And you start thinking about that, right? They've got a fraction, like a low single digit percent of their team that works in close proximity to their headquarters. And of course, they have a handful of other offices. But it makes you think, okay, what percent of people that work at Zoom work in these remote roles? If they're requiring people that are within 50 miles of an office to come in and they're not requiring it for anyone else that's not within 50 miles yet, they're coming out and saying that they believe that this is what makes their team most productive. And then you also think about the fact that Zoom's probably not going to be spending as much money on R&D and building their infrastructure and all that because we've already seen the demand surge for Zoom. We're probably not going to see Zoom usage double or triple or something again anytime soon. Do they really need 7,400, 7,500 employees? And if they don't, then what happens if you're not within 50 miles of an office um, or you're so far away from an office that you can't drive in? Are these people just um, you know, sort of waiting until they eventually are terminated? when there's you know, restructuring or downsizing, and how many other companies and employees of companies are in the same situation and don't even realize it yet? It's an interesting perspective. I think that the companies are treading so lightly, they probably, my guess is the 50 mile threshold is more about how practical it is for people to actually get to the office, right? And <clears throat> 50 miles is a long way. But you got to pick something uh, because a lot of the companies I've been hearing, big, one of the biggest challenges is you've allowed us to be remote and we've moved away. Okay, well, let's just take that piece of it off the table and set a geographic parameter and start there. I, don't know, I, I commend the ability to start somewhere. But my biggest thing is what does two days a week get you? Uh, it, you know, like, do you actually get all of the benefits of being in person when it's only two days a week because it just to me doesn't seem like it's enough three days seems better four days seems probably ideal but 
are you really are they really even doing it to get the benefits of of productivity and efficiency and all of the all of the um, the the data that's coming out of working in person being a better solution for a company? Do you get it at two days a week? I don't know. Well, I think it's I think personally it's a their their goal is to get to three to four, but going from one hundred percent remote work to four days a week or three days a week would be maybe a shock to the system and too much for people to handle. So Brian, I think it's a two day a week uh, cadence right now. And internally, unbeknownst to the rest of us, they pr probably have plans to bring it to three to four, six, 12 months from now is my guess. I just wanna make a point that, you know, a, f a hybrid model with four days in office per week is not the same thing as a four day work week. It's sort of, it, it's sneaky. But the fact is, as we move into this hybrid model, we're on call, we're working more, not less. Because whereas before, if you weren't in the office, you weren't expected to be working, you were in transition or not working. Um, again, we've decoupled you know, productivity from workplace, expected to be always on, regardless of whether you're there or not. I think we end up working more, not less, when we are no longer tethered to our office space um, to be associated with productivity. And giving it more thought, Tucker, your direct question, if their goal is to use this mandate as a soft attrition tool, right, to get people to leave the company, you're opening it up to your best people leaving, right? It, there has to be a more strategic way to reduce headcount than to create an in-office mandate when – if it's your best employees that walk out the door, where are you at the end of the day, right? So I don't know. It's it's an interesting thought, but it certainly, to me, would open the door for um, some real difficult times ahead if, you, you know, if you're using this type of a mandate to, to drive a reduction in headcount. I still think the most interesting thing from this article, though, is what does this do for the existing Zoom employees mindset that is not located near an office, right? The company that you work for has now come out and publicly said that they believe people working in the office are more effective than remote. And you're in a remote role at a company that may have layoffs in the future, right? What do you think? And how important is it for companies to think about that implied message to, to these folks that work from home? You know, if, if or, you know, work in a fully remote capacity and never come in except maybe like quarterly or a couple times a year. If I'm one of those teammates and I say, I think, okay, here here's the company that is ubiquitous with working remote that I thought was probably always safe from never having to return to the office. And now I have the executives of the company saying that people that work remote are less productive than people work in person. And the only way I can work in person is if I sell my house or you know, straight up move my family to, you know, one of the six or seven locations that they have in the U.S. and work there. That's not a good feeling. I think that a lot of those people might be going, okay, I need to look for another job or I'm at risk. For my part, I'm so tired of this conversation about hybrid in two days or three days or four days. I can't wait for a just crackerjack startup to hit the market by surprise and come out with a crazy product and a billion dollar valuation and they can talk about the last 12 months where they've been hunkered down in a garage or a startup office space working together and everyone's going to have to get on board and realize that's 
that's when we do our best work. I can't wait for that story. Yeah, I uh, I work with a company really closely that has had uh, almost no re remote work, even during COVID. It's a, uh, you know, industry that is critical to the country and was um, not included in the, you know, work from home mandates and all that. Uh, and there's no question, you know, going to these people's offices, seeing how they work, that there's been an enormous uh disparity in productivity between those people that have been hunkered down building versus those people that are, uh, you know, working remote and talking about building, but not actually doing the hard work that it requires. But um, Brian, why don't you make a last point on this? And then uh, I know that you're eager to talk about uh, WeWork's recent announcement. Yeah, I would just say that I think the marketplace, uh, I don't disagree with you for smaller companies, but I think I think the ship has sailed for larger companies. It, their teams are already remote. I work with a number of companies that have diversified teams around the globe. They're never going to be in the office together. Going to the office and seeing people at your company that don't do anything that you do adds really no value. So I think for smaller firms and for companies that you have a critical mass in, in a single location, don't disagree. But I think for larger diversified companies, they're going to go where the talent is and they're going to either work in an office or work remotely. And that ship has sailed. So we work um, for anyone who didn't hear the news this week, who isn't a you know, real estate nerd like the rest of us here. Um, we work came out in their second quarter filings and <clears throat> made a statement that there's substantial doubt exists that they would be able to continue as a growing, a, a going operation. They are, um, yeah, they are under a mountain of debt. They have revenue that is decreasing and they have a cash position that year over year has gone from 625 million in cash reserves to 200 million. Um, and the, the walls are closing in very quickly on WeWork and, um, you know, in, in the marketplace certainly is not supporting them in terms of the equity markets. Their stock is um, either going to have to do a reverse split or or likely be delisted. Uh, their ability to raise capital is challenged. They're, they have a ton of debt. Um, so they're just in a really, really difficult place today. So I have a question for all of you. What happens? Because WeWork is either going to get bought by private equity. They're going to go bankrupt probably and then bought or uh, they're going to go bankrupt and go away um, and, and, and uh, maybe fourth restructure. But I think that to me, uh, given the restructuring that they've done in the past and, and really where they are today, I would, I would be surprised if they uh, independently restructured under the current management team. Where do you guys believe what happens to the tenants in WeWork? Take the landlords out of it. Don't really care right now. But if you've got clients in WeWork, what's the message we should be telling them? My message is just to be careful and be mindful of your situation. So um, in the eyes of many of my clients, WeWork still provides a great offering in terms of the place that you work relative to other providers. I'm not saying they're the only ones that are, offer a great place, but they're certainly their facilities and premises are better than than many, I would say. Um, do you need to jump ship today um, for fear that you know your facility might close? No, uh, but we have seen that happen here in Seattle, where locations that we work um, had 
they tenants just got a notice that, hey, we're closing. Um, we can move you to another location uh, that we have within the city or we can let you go. And so I would just suggest and I have suggested um, over the weekend since this report came out to my clients that um, there's no reason to, you know, react today. Um, and WeWork certainly is not going to tell us if any of the locations that our clients are in are imminently going to be closing. Um, but it's something to keep on our radar. And also, even more importantly, as you start to evaluate co-working uh, for some of your occupancy uh, requirements, maybe you steer away, away from WeWork given what's going on right now. Um, so my suggestion is to avoid them uh, potentially, uh, unless it's like the only option or it's just by far and away the best option um, for new requirements. Um, and for existing locations, just be mindful of the situation and know that you might get notice tomorrow, for example, that in 30 or 45 days, you've got to find a new home. And so it behooves us serving our clients to identify what opportunities are out there should that happen. And so we're prepared to act. Yeah, but by nature, these the co-working are short-term solutions. So you're always you know, taking a short-term view of things and there's a little bit of risk to uh, need to move. Here's what I wanted to say. Like, are any of us surprised by this? You know, we work, it's, it's not, the co-working model's solid. Companies will be willing to pay a premium for term flexibility. Great space, move-in ready, relatively short-term commitment, and I'll pay a premium to what I would have to pay if I went and leased my own space and had to build it out or, you know, co-working as a model works. Um, we work was spending like a drunken sailor. I mean, they were at the top of the market signing long-term leases with massive TI, big slug of upfront free rent, all on the premise that that somehow that was going to be affor sustainable, affordable later. It's just, it's, it's the same reset that's happening across commercial real estate. These WeWork leases have to be reset. They're gonna give some back, they're gonna restructure others. Um, the, the price level that they were opening these you guys know it in the major metropolitan markets, the deals they were signing and that free, you know, heavy, heavy contract rental rates with a big slug of free rent. And that's all gone away. So something has to restructure. The model's fine. Uh, they were just overspending, I think, into this uh, at the peak of the market. I've made the joke to clients consistently for like the last decade that WeWork is the subsidized version of like Postmates or DoorDash or food delivery where you know, these companies are delivering food to your door and every delivery they do, they lose a dollar on, right? And just like heavily subsidized by VC dollars. And I think that was especially true of WeWork in the early days, right? Where, you know, the market wasn't yet on fire. They were signing, I think, reasonably good leases and they just were focused on how do we acquire more customers? I mean, um, you know, this is a long, long time ago in the early days, but um I represented WeWork in leasing a number of different buildings in Southern California where, you know, we helped them master lease the building and then they on their own found the subtenants. And I think that there was some some magic in the early days, but they always thought about it very differently than just how do we make money on this location? There was this, um, I think, fantasy that the lifetime value of a customer that you have in your WeWork community was dramatically higher than it actually is. Like, wait a sec, they're going to be in our community and we're going to sell them business consulting services and insurance and payroll and all of these other things. And they're never going to leave because why would anyone leave WeWork? It's the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, there was really, it felt like when you talk to some WeWork employees, almost like they were part of a cult, like they were truly changing the world. And it's like, okay, 
great. People can enjoy working in WeWork, but at the end of the day, it's just office space. Um, so anyways, kind of funny side story, but related to, to where WeWork is right now, I mean, when you think about the scenarios here, it's really hard to imagine a scenario where um, their existing assets, like if you want to call them assets, really have any value. I mean, think about what WeWork has. They have a portfolio of dramatically above market leases. That's it. Like that's kind of all they have. And of course, like they spent money to acquire these customers and all that, but um, nobody wants these above market leases. It's very hard to make money on these above market leases. And since WeWork shifted to more of a, hey, we need to make money. We need to figure out how to stay in business, which of course every business should you know, make that shift at some point, right? But since they made that, there's many instances where it just doesn't make sense economically to look at a WeWork, uh, particularly when there's so much sublease space that's high quality, fully furnished, move-in ready and all that that's available as an alternative. So I'm not surprised that they're struggling. I think private equity is going to have a really hard time looking at what they're buying, a portfolio of above market leases and feeling comfortable paying anything that is even you know, remotely would make sense versus figuring out how to restructure, get out of these leases, retain as many customers as they can and continue on in some other fashion. Good points. Here, here's my take on it. We work as a company, as a brand is going to be around. I think the brand has a lot of value. I think the above market leases have no value. But I think landlords would have a massive hole in in many of the top landlords in top markets, right? So they'd have these large holes of space that have to fill. So there's the scenarios I see is WeWork as a brand continues to operate under new leadership, new capitalization. They go to the landlords and through bankruptcy and restructure and get rid of a lot of the locations they don't want, restructure all the leases down to a manageable rent that makes sense for everybody. And maybe they move to because the industry is really moving to a management agreement model, right? So Regis right now won't sign a lease that's not a management agreement. So that's if for folks that don't know, a management agreement model is they don't pay any direct rent. The only rent is the the licenses that sit on top of the 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 WeWork or the Regis. And those licenses, there's a revenue sharing model between ownership and the operator. Um, uh, so in, in many other firms in the industry are using this model. And, and it's difficult to get landlords on board because they cannot, there's no rent to capitalize. It's all, you know, it's all based on occupancy and who knows what occupancy is going to be. So it's very difficult for certain investors and certain landlords to get their arms around it. But where it works... Or if there's a center that's already open, it already has revenue attributed to it. Can we come up with a way to uh, to come up with a sharing agreement that you operate it and I can and, and I participate in the revenue that's generated? I think there's going to be a lot of that restructuring. The, the 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 message I'm giving my clients is: What happens in the interim? The day that that we work goes insolvent. They're not going to be able to play, pay their employees. And right now, there's no direct relationship between the, the WeWork tenants, the subscribers or the licensees, and the landlord. So how do you get access to your IT closet? How do you get access to your space? Who do you call if you've got an IT issue, right? Because you're on 
WeWork Wi-Fi, you're on WeWork IT. All of those, all of those services. Who are you calling? These, this company can't make payroll. They have no more cash. People are going to start walking out the door. So there's, are you gonna, you know, is it going to be something that you're eventually going to get thrown out? Probably not. But is your life going to be miserable in the short term? Are you going to have a difficult time? running your business from a location that doesn't have anyone staffing it? I think so. That in The good landlords will figure that out. Um, they will. They, the landlords that want to keep the type of service office in their building will figure it out. Others, like one Lincoln Street here where, where WeWork's been sitting on about six floors of vacant former Amazon space, and they've got two or three floors of, of lease space, they're not going to try to figure that out. That space has been vacant. WeWork doesn't want it. The landlord, landlord's not going to try to figure it out. So there's going to be this all this uncertainty with that particular location. And there's a lot of those types of locations around the country. So if I, you know, if I was one of these companies, I wouldn't be moving in there in the short term. I'd let this, this smoke settle. Uh, and if I did have an operation there that was critical to, to my business, I'd be looking at contingency plans um, in the short term just, just from a business continuity perspective. There's some really good alternatives out there that are less expensive. I have one client that's, that won't go to Regis. I mean, won't go to WeWork, won't go to Regis, and has been using these mom and pops in markets and has really loves, loves the model, loves the, the, uh, the relationship they have with the centers that are much more uh, intimate in, in terms of the management teams and the in the uh, operators that are there so there's a lot of other alternatives market to market that could be a good solution for for our clients that's my take on it yeah it's it's interesting to think about a, a potential future where there is a like marriott hotel brand of shared office space and it's done in a way where you know the largest hotel operators don't actually own any hotels right and i think that that may have been a flaw in the WeWork model, right? Is having so much exposure to um, market uh, forces, signing these ultra long 10, 20 year leases, recognizing that rents go up and then they come down. Um, and their, well, their agreement with the landlord with the locked in rent is um, that increases every single year is very long. Their agreements with their tenants are generally, you know, a year or two or three years or even less. Um, and you're having to reset to the market. So you're exposed from a from a price standpoint. I, I think the Marriott of shared office space is a significantly smaller business than what WeWork thought they would be able to do, or anyone in that space thinks that they'll be able to do without being able to capture some sort of uh, rental arbitrage directly, but it still could be a great business. Um, that said, one uh, big flaw that uh, I've personally seen with this is there are already uh, like WeWork and other co-working companies already operate a portion of their business off of these management agreements in certain locations. It's probably a minority for WeWork. I bet it's less than, at least in the US, I bet it's less than 10% of their total locations are under management agreement. What I've found is that those locations that are under management agreement have been extraordinarily difficult to get deals done. And generally the occupancy is super low. Um, and the reason for that, when you actually talk to the people there, um, their feedback is, hey, the owner of the building sets pricing and we can't transact unless it's at X. And the result is that X is mispriced. It's aligned with um, like what a pro forma says they need to achieve in order to hit their return or justification for having it. And then they end up having a floor that's 80% vacant. And I just was touring one with a client a few weeks ago 
And I ended up, you know, having a, you know, cordial relationship with the people that toured us and following up with them, trying to figure out how to make a deal. They were literally three times more expensive than the next best option. And they sort of told me they're like heart to heart, you know, like obviously not going to breach confidentiality or anything here, but they're like, look, it's super depressing. Basically, every single person that comes to tour, we know that we won't be able to make a deal with them because our pricing is so screwed up. But our client, who is the you know person that holds the has hired them for the management agreement, won't change the pricing. <laughs> so you just think like, how messed up is that? Uh, so it is different than I think hotels uh, in that regard. And um, so, anyways, will be interesting to see if that agreement, that management structure, actually works uh, for landlords in the long run. So the last comment on this that I thought uh, was kind of interesting is, you know, as the sharks are swirling, everybody wants to, you know, have a comment or take a bite at it. But Mark Dixon, who is the CEO of Regis in Spaces, the competitor to WeWork. Um, and by the way, I don't know if they've gone bankrupt once, but it's at least once, maybe multiple times since they became a going entity many years ago, um, had a comment that the the build-outs were just entirely wrong. They said they've taken somewhere around 50 uh, WeWorks over and they've had to rebuild the spaces. And it just goes to show you how backwards the world is right now from my perspective, because when WeWork was first introduced into the market, everyone was talking about a whole old and uh, antiquated, the Regis model was and how they built space. And now Regis is saying that WeWork's model and how they built spaces doesn't meet the market. So uh, it's just thought that, that that was pretty funny. Cool. Changing gears. Um, I'm just going to hit on my topic this week, um, which is kind of synonymous with what Tucker said, but it has to do with the biggest technology tenant in my market, which is Amazon. And last week they sent notices to all employees who have not been comp uh, complying with the three days a week in the office. And non-compliance was defined as three days in the office, at least five of the last eight weeks. So if you've not been in three days a week, at least five of the last eight weeks, you got a letter or an email saying that, hey, uh, you know, you're not compliant with our policy. Now, interestingly, the uh, letter didn't say what the repercussions were going to be for noncompliance, but you can see where this is going. Um, and I'm not saying that for being a pessimist, but I imagine it's it's kind of a, a black mark on your report card, so to speak. And if there's additional layoffs at some point, you might be the first to go. Um, but it, in the same article, um, and I'm going to quote this because I don't want to get it wrong, um, and this goes back to our talk about, you know, what do you get if you're in the office and is it really that much better, et cetera. Mike Hopkins, who is a senior vice president of Amazon Video and Studios, was asked in an internal meeting to provide any data that would support the decision to send workers back to the office. His response was, quote, I think it's just time. It's time to disagree and commit. We're here. We're back. It's working. He reportedly said, quote, I don't have the data to back it up but I know it's better. And so I, I share that, not just for giving you his, his opinion, but I, I suspect that's the sentiment of a lot of the leaders these days, which is they're tired of people complaining about having to go into the office and asking someone to come in three days a week is not a big ask because let's not forget that just two years ago, or maybe a little more than two years now, um, we were going to the office five days a week without being asked. Um, and so 
I have a feeling that there's some that the way I read that quote, it at least in my own perception was like I it felt like there was a little frustration uh, in the in the underlying current tone there, which is just get into the office, and that's why Amazon is probably issuing uh, those letters to those who aren't complying. Um, and if you are one of those people that aren't complying, in my own opinion, it might be time to go back to the office. One of the things that cracks me up a little bit about show me the data. How is it better to be in the office? It's like, show me, show me the data that it's better to be from home, right? Nobody has the data. Why is the base case scenario, hey, show me data to prove that I should come in. Why isn't it show me data to prove that you can stay at home? So kind of weird that the narrative has jumped on to trying to prove why being in the office is better versus the opposite case. Yeah, I, lo- I like, it's interesting because, you know, having some, um, some clients that used to work at Amazon and some friends that used to work at Amazon, it fits their culture perfectly to approach it this way. There's many clients and companies I've worked with over the years that would never send a letter to their employees. They, you know, they're scared to death about, uh, or, you know, scared to death about losing key employees, about their culture, about using the, you know, the mandate and using, um, an edict from the top to drive performance and to drive behavior versus other companies that are really looking at building a culture that um, attracts people for the reasons that they want to come to the office. And, and quite frankly, it's been unsuccessful so far. So who knows where we end up? But Amazon's culture is very cutthroat. And the folks that I've known that have worked there have said that it's a very black and white culture. And it's difficult at times for uh, you know, for engineers that are that are highly um, successful in their careers to work there because it's just so structured and they're used to having a lot more autonomy and a lot more uh, bandwidth to do whatever they want because of their you know, talents. And uh, so ed- this edict is interesting. You know, this this report card about the edict is interesting. That Amazon's kind of the first to do it that I know of. Hey, let's jump over. Let me get my article here. Um, Debbie Downer. Let me be Debbie Downer. Um, so this is actually an older article. It's a couple months old. But in light of these wildfires in Maui, like, what the hell? What just happened? Um, unprecedented loss of life. Lahaina. Um, okay, so let me read you this article. This uh, climate change is de- destabilizing the insurance industry from E&E News, where um, Aon PLC President Eric Anderson went in and presented to a Senate committee. Um It said that climate change is injecting uncertainty into an industry built on risk prediction and has created a crisis of confidence around the ability to predict loss. Uh, Reinsurance companies, which help insurers pay catastrophic losses, have been withdrawing from high-risk areas around wildfire and flood in particular. Um, And he added, just as the U.S. economy, economy was overexposed to mortgage risk in 2008, the economy today is overexposed to climate risk. I mean, and again, this fire in Maui, I think, really accentuates this point. And my question is, what the hell happens when we can't insure against catastrophic loss? Like, it's sort of that part of the lease that we don't always read every language of the, you know, damage and destruction. Except, you know, Lahaina just burned to the ground. Hawaii used to have some of the lowest property insurance rates. And guess what? That's going to change. Because weird stuff is happening. and it's going to. Who's going to insure against flood in Florida? or fire in Maui. Anyway, um, this could, I would call it a potential black swan event, except it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise. We're watching this happen. It's like the frog boiling in slow motion. Um, 
insurance is going to become, I believe, a critical issue as weird stuff keeps happening. And how do we insure against catastrophic loss? Pay more for it. I just, I think that's coming. Yeah, not only is this an interesting topic, just affecting all different types of real estate product types and all kinds of other things that are traditionally insured, but you think about the impacts for uh, companies that are on triple net leases or have a base year that's not the current year. Um, like in California, one of the things that we're always very cautious about is, okay, is the tax assessed value have a, a big disparity from the actual value? What happens if the building sells and the tax basis resets? Well, this might start having a similar level of exposure on insurance, right? What if insurance premiums literally double? Because that's the only way that you can get insurance. I mean, to put in perspective, and granted, this is, a, a I think, a little bit different. Um, granted, I don't understand the topography of this part of Hawaii um, as well as you do, John. But in Los Angeles, if you own a home that is um, in like the Hollywood Hills or in the Santa Monica Mountains, which is a a meaningful portion of single family homes um, in like the kind of main air, the um, like expensive parts of Los Angeles. It's very challenging to even get fire insurance at any price, literally any price. I mean, I have a friend who owns a home that is probably 30, $40 million home that does not have fire insurance. I mean, can you imagine just the amount of homes in Los Angeles? I mean, there's, billions or probably tens of billions of dollars of homes in LA that just don't have fire insurance. I mean, and it, it, that's only going to be exacerbated. I mean, for me, I don't even live up in the mountains, but I live close to those mountains. And it took me going to like 15 different insurance carriers to get fire insurance for my home. And if my home burns down, it will have meant that like absolute chaos. I mean, it would be like a Lahaina level of event where Nobody, you look at these pictures and you're just like, how does this happen? I mean, it's unfathomable that something like that can happen. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty wild um, and big implications for the real estate industry. And I think you're right. It's only going to get worse. And it's not only paying out these claims. It's how do you determine what premiums should be? And in an industry where you could... Uh, underwrite these risks pretty clearly. If you can no longer underwrite the risks, then I think the only way to compensate for that is having premiums that are so, so much higher that you know that it's above the, the threshold of underwriting. So when there's risk in underwriting, the premiums have to become more expensive to account for that risk and build and buffer above you know, what the models say. So yeah, pretty wild to think insurance premiums could go up even further. Yeah. And What's ha what's happening in Hawaii? Um, it's just it's just unbelievable. But uh, let's take it in a different direction uh, because just from from the perspective of what we do every day, uh, I've got uh, two things. What I've started to see is landlords trying to keep the premiums at a rate that because different buildings are in different locations, right? So there's different risk profiles for if you're out looking at five industrial buildings or five office buildings, each one of them has a different risk profile in terms of is it near, you know, past floods? Is it near, um, you know, it's in the, it's the fire corridor if you're in the West Coast, if you're 
uh, on the ocean? Is it, you know, has it been in, in um, some sort of a category or some type of a hurricane event or something? So each building has a different risk profile. So what I've noticed is that landlords are trying to keep the premiums down. So what they're doing is they're putting into leases and they're providing you, um, you know, uh, uh, draft statements of the operating. Their deductibles are going through the roof. So how do you keep the premium down? Throw the deductible through the roof, right? So companies should be aware that there's a game being played by landlords to try to on the you know, on paper look like, oh, insurance is pretty reasonable. It's the same from building to building to building. Well, you have to dig in a little deeper and look at what the deductibles are, because if there was an event and the deductibles through the roof, that cost could be significantly higher at one building to the next. We I found that on a lease recently. Um, and the only other comment I have is that, you know, what, what in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast and just caused massive devastation. And it, to me, I think a lot of the issues is not necessarily drastic changes like the fires uh, out west are different but at least on the east coast in florida a lot of the change of the issues i believe are not the fact that the weather is that different or the tides are that different or the ocean currents are that different it's we're just building back the same way we built before boston for example they have the seaport district was built it was created through um through infill okay and they built the entire, it's got to be 20 million square feet. It is gorgeous. It is a brand new city within the city. It's beautiful. And they built it all on grade at ground that's only slightly a couple feet above sea level. So during a major nor'easter, um, some of the major buildings, so um, Goodwin Proctor, a major law firm, their lobby floods. The building's about four years old. Right. So it's I think a lot of the issue is humans like we're, we're just not thinking this stuff through properly. If you go over to Europe, I just did a built a suit a couple of years ago for a client in uh, in Ireland. They build these beautiful podiums, which then they cover in grass. So you don't even realize the parking is actually two levels above ground because they build this nice podium with a, gra- with a parking on top with a grass on top of the parking structures that bring the grade way up. And then the lobby sits on the podium. It all looks great, but it's two or three stories above sea level. So the parking garage floods versus the freaking lobby of the building like they built here in Boston. So, so what what portion of the issue is that we're just building where we shouldn't be building and we're building too much of it? Hey, Tucker, let me do a quick hit to uh, and maybe wrap up on this. But the uh, and this is a little bit lighter than, you know, famine and floods and fire. Um, so you guys ever see the show Ozark, uh, Jason Bateman? It's hysterical. Um, Okay, in, a, in an example of life imitating art, um, we've talked in the past about biotech, how certain developments were shut off. Those that could sort of hit the brakes and not go forward, they hit the brakes and they did not go forward. Some people did go forward, even though, and then the question was like, okay, where'd they get the money to do that? So one example, Harrison Street, um, Sterling Bay went forward with a project in San Diego called Pacific Center. And where'd they get the money? You got it. Bank of the Ozarks, public company. Public bank. Can't make this stuff up. Watch that space. Okay. There you have it. That concludes episode 18. Covered everything from Zoom to WeWork to crazy insurance premiums, natural disasters, John covering Bank of the Ozark. Uh, Just about every topic you could think of in 40 minutes. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with episode 19 soon. Bye.